Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 119 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing constructed languages in fantasy and science fiction, and I'm joined by two guest geeks. So first up, we've got David J. Peterson. He holds a master's degree in linguistics from UC San Diego and is a co-founder of the Language Creation Society. He created the Dothraki language for the HBO series Game of Thrones and has also created languages for the sci-fi channel shows Defiance and Dominion. He's also the author of Living Language Dothraki and the upcoming book The Art of Language Invention. So David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet another David. <laughs> and also joining us today is Lawrence M. Schoen. He holds a PhD in cognitive psychology and psycholinguistics and is the director and founder of the Klingon Language Institute. He edited the Institute's scholarly journal, Hochkad, and is also a fantasy and science fiction author who's been a finalist for the Campbell Award, the Hugo Award, and the Nebula Award. So, Lawrence, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. I, I'm going to be an honorary David when we're done here, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how it works. Excellent. All right, and so uh, on the Subject of constructed languages in fantasy and science fiction. Obviously, the first name that comes to mind for me on that subject is J.R.R. Tolkien. So I'd like to start out and talk a bit about him. So let's start with David and have you just talked a little bit about how big was Tolkien's role in the development of language construction? Well, first, Tolkien was a very, uh, very important figure in the language creation movement because um, he was, at least that we have on record, uh, he was the first person to uh, create languages for purposes other than international communication or um, religious mania or philosophical uh, experimentation. Um, I'm sure that there were others, but he's, of course, the first one that we have on record. Uh, he, he was a language creator going way back, and um, it was probably part of what spurred his interest in philology, which was his um, academic background. Um, and uh, he actually went on to write the series, you know, The Hobbit and, and The Lord of the Rings, because he wanted a place for his languages to live and breathe. Um, and I think it really resonated with a certain uh, percentage of his fans, not all of them, certainly, but those who uh, ended up spending more time with the appendices than with the actual text. Um, and he ended up inspiring, uh, a, a, you know, legions of people around the world uh, to create their own languages who... Um, you know, who, who didn't have to fit into, you know, the, the little box that had been set for language creation by, uh, you know, big languages like Esperanto or, uh, or Volapük or even, um, philosophical languages by John Wilkins and Rowe and, and what have you. Uh, so we kind of think of him as the father, as the father of, or the great grandfather of the artistic language movement, those who created languages just, uh, for their own purposes. Um, and, uh, to date, he stands as as one of the uh, one of the better language creators. I mean, he suffered from not having a community, um, but he kind of founded the historical method, which is what most naturalistic art langers uh, do today. I'm just sort of curious. You mentioned people making languages as part of religious mania. Could is there? Mm -hmm. Could you say a bit more about that? Oh, there have been tons. Uh, just you know, throughout the centuries, you know, the first the first language. The first created language that we have a record of was uh, Lingua Ignota, created by Hildegard von Bingen. She was an abbess, a German abbess, 
and she uh, created this vocabulary. Uh, it was more vocabulary than language in the 12th century. Um, and she was inspired to, to basically, she thought that God was speaking directly to her um, to create this new vocabulary so that she could write music in it, because she was also a composer, an excellent uh, composer. Um, and so she would write songs with kind of uh, using the grammar of Latin, but using the vocabulary that she had invented, this uh, lingua ignota. Um, and, and some of her songs survive, and about a thousand of her vocabulary items survive. But uh, again, this wasn't like... Um, this wasn't for international communication. It wasn't some experiment, and she wasn't doing this for fun. She thought that she was doing this because God was instructing her directly to do it. Um, and there were several others uh, up to around the 17th century who thought the same. Um, one of the one of the older languages, Bala Ibalan, from uh, the Ottoman Empire, I think modern day Turkey, kind of had a similar role where it was tied into mysticism. Uh, as well as kind of linguistics and international communication. There was that component as well. And there have been a couple throughout centuries. I think Enochian was one of them. Um, but I forget if they were actually, if they actually thought they were being inspired or if they just pretended that they were. I can't remember the story on Enochian. And even an early, um, auxiliary language, Volapük, um, the uh, creator, Martin von Schleyer, uh, claimed kind of divine right when he was creating that language, which was one of the reasons why the language failed. When anybody would try to suggest improvements or additions, he would <laughs> absolutely forbid this because he said he was the only one with the authority, he was the only one with a direct connection to God that could actually shape the language. Hmm. All right, well, let's get back to Tolkien for a second. So, Lawrence, do you have anything you want to add to what David said about Tolkien? I, I, I just have to echo most of what he said. Um, I mean, personally, Tolkien... I, I got into linguistics uh, because of Tolkien and because of people studying Tolkien's languages. Uh, at a very young age, I think I was 12, and, and ran into a group called the Mythopaic Linguistic Fellowship. Uh, and my life would doubtless have taken very different turns had I not... In effect, uh, they, they taught me basic phonology one afternoon in a pool at a convention. <laughs> And, and, and did away with a speech impediment I'd had throughout my childhood. Hmm. Which was? Uh, I couldn't say the, the sound like in human. I would say human. Oh, that's actually just a variation. Some people, I think it's, some people do that. I think it's a southern thing. Well, sure, but I was, I was in Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what motivates, what motivated you to want to learn these? Uh, imaginary constructed languages other than the fact that God was telling you to do it? <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's something... I mean, I've always been fascinated by languages both naturally occurring and constructed, and there's just something amazing. Uh, it's, it's part of what put me towards psycholinguistics. Um, I used to tell my students, we have this conundrum that at one, at one and the same time, language is the most complex thing we will do as human beings. Uh, and we're pretty much done with it by about age five. But on the other hand, it is woefully inadequate for the purpose that we've set it to. Well, what, what is psycholinguistics exactly? 
Ah, exactly is the tough part. <laughs> what, is, what is psycholinguistics approximately? Approximately. There we go. But Klingons are never approximate. Uh, psycholinguistics is loosely the, the study of the behavior of language, which covers everything from abstract things like semantics to language acquisition, bilingualism, uh, everything in between. It's, it's language as viewed from, from, uh, behavioral scientists as opposed to linguists. Hmm. Well, and, and I mean, Dave, you have a background just in straight out linguistics, right? You want to tell, tell us about how you got into that and maybe how that's a little bit different from what Lawrence does? Oh, yeah. Good old linguistics. It's, um, it's kind of has, uh, it, there's kind of two, two areas of linguistics, two broad areas of linguistics, uh, theoretical linguistics and, than descriptive linguistics. Um, and um, the former is probably what most people think of when they think of a linguist. That is, you know, the person who goes out to, uh, you know, some some place where there's a language spoken that not many people speak, and they actually try to, you know, transcribe it to figure out its rules and to write a grammar of it. Um, theoretical linguistics... Um, Nevertheless, is what I think most people get instruction in when they go in as an undergraduate linguistics major. Uh, theoretical linguistics looks at language as a system. Um, it tries to analyze the various facets of language independently. That is, its sound system and how the sounds relate to one another. That would be uh, phonetics, um, which would be actually the uh, the measurable area of the sound system, but also phonology, which is a theoretical uh, mechanisms behind the sound systems and how they interrelate to one another. So phonology takes care of that. Then how um, words are built and how words are interrelated, that's morphology. Then how words themselves are arranged into sentences and phrases, that's syntax. And then how we achieve meaning, which is syntax and pragmatics. Um, and it's uh, And for me, it was just... Uh, you know, I got into linguistics because I, I came into college as a declared English major, and um, my mother prevailed upon me to take an undergraduate linguistics course, despite the fact that I didn't want to, because I was only interested in learning languages, and I thought that learning about them sounded dull. Um, but I, I took this undergraduate uh, linguistics course, a general introduction, and it was so different from English. You know, uh, in English, you you read you read texts and you write essays. And here in linguistics, it was just throwing a, a bunch of language data to you, and you would get to do these homework assignments that were almost like, you know, little puzzles to me, things that I might just do for fun if I felt like it. And this was the work, <laughs> at least at that stage of linguistics, you know, when you're taking your first course. And I thought that was just absolutely, the, it was like candy to me. So, so how did you go from studying linguistics to making up your own languages? I basically did it at the same time. So I created my first language uh, at the same time that I was taking my very first uh, undergraduate course in linguistics. Um, it was also at that time that I was taking a course in Esperanto. It was a student-taught course. And then I was taking my second semester of Arabic and my first semester of Russian, as well as just uh, an English course on... I think it was uh, 19th century literature. Um, and um, it was really, uh, all of those factors contributed to the idea. I had um, 
the only created languages I had heard of were Esperanto and its competitors. So Esperanto, Volapük, Occidental, things like that. Um, those were the only ones I'd ever heard of, and I heard of them in my Esperanto class. So I came up with what I thought was a novel idea, which was to create a language that was just for my personal use. Um, I didn't think that anybody had ever done that before. I only thought <laughs> that people had created languages for international communication and world peace. Um, so I thought that this was really a novel idea, and I, I, it came to me during one of my linguistics courses, and I just took right to it. Um, Several months later, I would find the the other language creators in the language creation community and and see, you know, what a what a what a small fish in a large pond I was. Yeah, well, I mean, Lawrence, I mean, you mentioned meeting people in the pool, right? Could you talk a little bit more about how you got more and more involved in this community of language creation and how that led to you um, learning Klingon? I, I think I had. And the very same sort of set, set of experiences that David had, and, and it's something that I see, I've seen repeated in almost anyone who gets bit by this, this artificial or constructed language bug. Uh, as an undergraduate, I started out in psychology. I switched my major to linguistics, and then I petitioned the university to allow me to construct my own major of psycholinguistics taking courses from both those departments and a couple other uh, speech pathology departments and so forth, because I wanted all the tools to look at the same phenomenon from, from many different angles. Uh, and, and David is, 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 I took the words out of my mouth. It was candy. You know, people are giving you these puzzles and, and you're going to get a grade for it. <laughs> what fun. It was, it was just so sweet. Uh, and, and, when you start doing that, you start looking at the underlying structures, you start seeking patterns, and then you say, well, I could do that, but I'm going to do a different kind of pattern and see if that works out, and you start coming up with your own, uh, at least in my, my uh, case, very rudimentary constructed language that never intended for it to go anywhere, but it was just, can I do this thing? Um... And then I think I started with this when I was like 12 with the, with the, the people doing uh, Tolkien's language. And Tolkien was still alive back then. The Silmarillion hadn't come out. You know, we were constantly hoping for new words. Uh, and and it was, it was just a, very magical. Um, and years later, uh, when, I was, when I was a professor uh, teaching at a small college in Illinois, and and I needed a distraction because we'd been downsized, and and so I was going to be out on my ear. Um, I thought to myself, you know, it, someone gave me a copy of the Klingon Dictionary, and I wish I could remember who because they're responsible for everything that came after. And I just flashed back to what we'd been doing with with Quenya and Sindarin, and I said I could do that with Klingon for a little while and see if there were other people around who wanted to play with this. Uh, and it was a, it was just a series of fortunate circumstances and timing because the internet was just taking off at that time. There was no World Wide Web yet, but the sort of people who had email accounts were people in the, in the government, people in the military, programmers, and college professors. And I quickly discovered that many, there's this huge subset of, of computer programmers who are into constructed languages, because that's what they're doing anyway. Program languages are, are miniature languages. Uh, and there was a whole community out there. Hmm. 
I mean, could you tell us a bit more about when you encountered the Klingon dictionary? Um, how did that Klingon dictionary come about? What was sort of the origins of the Klingon language? Well, the Klingon language has has some has a rather strange origin. Uh, in the original three years of of the the original series, we never get any Klingon language. Uh, we get a little bit in the very in the in an opening sequence in the I think it's the first film. Uh, we see a few Klingon vessels in space, and then they're blown up. Uh, but before they're blown up, uh, we hear some Klingon spoken, and we see subtitles. And there was no language then. There was just uh, the director going to, to James Doohan and saying, make up some sounds for me. Uh, because uh, James was a, a, a master of dialects. So he, in effect, created the first spoken Klingon. Uh, and, and they said, here's what this means. And they put in the subtitles. Years later, when uh, Mark Okrand was brought in for the third film, uh, he went back, he looked at and listened to the sounds from those few lines and said, okay, any language I build has to have those sounds in it. And this string of sounds, this, this utterance, this sentence has to mean what it said on the screen in the subtitles, but I can break it up in any way I want to get there. And that was his starting point, so those handful of sounds, and then he started adding to it. He was basically given two mandates, one to create a language that felt utterly alien, and yet at the same time could be spoken by actors. Uh, and and th th those, those are, are diametrically opposed tasks, but I think he did a pretty good job. But there are all kinds of quirky things about Klingon that, that rarely, if ever, occur in other naturally occurring languages. Uh, so whenever he had a chance to pick something and make it difficult, he did. <laughs> uh, and David, is the Klingon language, is that something that you studied or followed yourself at all? No. Um, I wasn't aware that there was a Klingon language um, until very late, until I'd already start creating languages. Um, despite the fact that I was a fan of Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, a big fan, I, I watched it, I remember watching the first episode, and I really, I, I'd actually be very interested to go back and talk to myself and try to figure out why it never occurred to me that I like that, that there was a Klingon language since there are plenty of words in it in the show, even if they're not correct, um, as I learned, um, and, and plenty, and plenty of utterances in there. I don't know why it never dawned on me, but it never did. Well, do you want to explain a little bit? When you say it's not correct, do you want to explain a, a bit more about what you mean by that? Uh, well, apparently, this is, this is true for Star Trek The Next Generation specifically. Um, apparently, uh, though Mark Okren did translation for the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation, um, he wasn't invited back to do translation for the rest of the show. Um, and since there was a Klingon dictionary out, the writers just kind of used it without really paying attention at all to how the grammar works. And if they didn't like a word, they'd change it, maybe add one. Uh, this is this about accurate, Lawrence? It's pretty accurate. It's, it, it was really horrible. <laughs> and, and, and the other, the other classic ploy of, of this sort of version of Klingon, uh, is when in doubt, throw in apostrophes. Uh, and and but don't pronounce the apostrophes as they're as they're used actually in Klingon, uh, because apostrophes look alien. 
when you see them in the subtitles. Uh, no matter how, you know, string three or four of them together, it's just alien. Uh, so, and then, and then, of course, the actors couldn't pronounce the things correctly. So you're listening to the show, and you're and and Klingon speakers are trying to figure out what the heck they meant to say, uh, given context and and garbled pronunciation and you know utter ignorance of of the syntax. Um, but uh, that 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 became a thing. Uh, that that was another fun thing to do with the language. Uh, a, a regular feature when the KLI. Uh, was doing its journal would be here's what e- here's what aired you know in the past month or the past quarter on television and here's what they were si- trying to say here's what we think they meant in some cases the studios were kind enough to send me a script so I could actually get a transcription which which would look nothing like what were on the subtitles <laughs> and 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 bore even less resemblance to what what you heard. Um, but, uh, we, we ran that under the, under the, the line, uh, everyday Klingon. <laughs> yeah. It's an, it's an interesting puzzle for all the wrong reasons. Basically. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and what, what's, what's fascinating to it, well, fascinating might be going over the line, but depends on how geeky your, uh, your listeners are. In some instances, Mark Okren went back and, and retconned an error. Wow. Why? <laughs> be, because he could. Uh, because you didn't, because there, there's a, a scene from an episode of, of Deep Space Nine, uh, they did, uh, they did a show where they brought back the three original Klingons from, from the original series. And one of them sees another and he calls out to him, my friend. And he uses the word for friend in a word that could be my, uh, but that's not how you'd construct that in Klingon. Uh, the Klingon has has uh, nominal suffixes to indicate possession, rather than a separate word, uh, and it also has gender in a way that's different from the way English, for example, uses gender. It's not to determine uh, sex, but rather to determine whether something is intelligent or not. So he he used he said my friend in a way that not only was syntactically wrong. It also meant my friend who cannot speak, who is who is no obviously no more intelligent than an inanimate object. And so Mark went back and said, "Oh no, this obviously insulting thing is something that a really good friend would call another." Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, so Lawrence, I mean, it sounds like the 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 movie studio, etc., was just really not. Did, they didn't care about the the Klingon language stuff. Is is that true of all the Star Trek stuff up to the present day, or did they ever start caring about it more? It varied a lot. You know, I th- I think the difference is between a film and and a TV show is you've got one week to churn out this episode and get the next one and get geared up for the next one. So you don't have the luxury of of picking up the phone and calling Mark Okrand or or somebody. Uh, and it depended on. Who was involved in a particular show? Some directors and some uh, writers were more open to it than others. Um, there was a time uh, during the the run of Enterprise when they wanted some um, they wanted some Vulcan, and Mark wasn't available, and Mark told them to call me. 
and this was they want this was Brent Spiner was was playing um the the original um Noonien Sung I believe it was and and the Vulcans are after him and he speaks to them in Vulcan uh before they blow him up or something and they wanted that in Vulcan and ironically I I would have loved to have done it you know to to write Vulcan for for Brent Spiner that would have been sweet. But ironically, I was in the south of France at the Cannes Film Festival promoting a Klingon language documentary. And they couldn't reach me. Uh, and then as it turned out, the whole thing got scrapped. But there was an intention to do something like this. There was the intention to do it right. And I think part of it stems from the fact that Paramount has learned, often to its regret, how rabid and enthusiastic Star Trek fans are. You know, that they will freeze frame and they will look at everything on the bridge and they will, they will zoom in so that you can't even have some of the visual gags that appeared in the original series because now we have the technology to zoom in and say, Hey, look what it says there on those control, on that control panel. Uh, they can't do that anymore. So some, some people have wanted to honor that, uh, and make the attempt. And, but I, th- I think, uh, and this will be a linguistic joke that, that David will get, that the pragmatics uh, of the situation just didn't allow for it in, in weekly television. Hmm. Uh, well, but I mean, for the HBO Game of Thrones series, I, I, I mean, they did take a lot of trouble to to do the Dothraki language, right? Um, David, why don't you tell us about your involvement in that? And why do you think that they, they went to so much trouble to do that when they hadn't done that uh, to a large extent on Star Trek? Uh it's always a it's always an interesting question when it comes to you know is a show going to use you know a created language or not and and often it often it it has more to do with how the thing got started and um in the case of Game of Thrones of course they um Dan Weiss and David Benioff they got a pilot greenlit uh before they got a series run greenlit so HBO wanted to review a pilot internally and determine if the show was going to go to series or not. Um, and I think everybody thought it was, but, uh, you know, e- even so, it was a test run. And for this initial episode, there was going to be a, a key set of scenes occurring um, in over in the Dothraki territory where Daenerys is married to Drogo, the Dothraki Khal. What happened was they, um, obviously for a book, you can say whatever you want is happening in a different language, simply in the narration. When this was translated onto the screen, um, David Benioff and Dan Weiss were extremely concerned with making sure that it was as faithful to the books as possible. And so when these scenes came up, they wanted uh, the Dothraki actors speaking Dothraki, both in the foreground and in the background. Um, so first they went to uh, George R. R. Martin and asked if he had kind of a compendium for the language, uh, and of course he did not. Um, he, he just uh, would create stuff on the spot and it would go in the book, but he did a pretty good job about making it cohere, uh, in my opinion at least. And uh, so their next step was they tried to write just some gibberish um, for the Dothraki. And I guess trying it out, they found it to be extremely unsatisfactory. It just sounded bad. And uh, so for that reason, they thought, well, we're, we're doing this pilot. Let's um, 
you know, let's bring in somebody to create the language. And then once, you know, once I had come on and I had done that, and then they filmed the pilot, it was like, well, this is now a feature of the show. And so it kind of like gets grandfathered in. And now it's like, you know, what, what became kind of a selling point, I think, or it's like a little factoid and in their pitch to HBO. It's like, you know, here's this pilot. And by the way, here's this detail that we added, you know, this full language. Look at all this detail that went into it. Um, you know, now it becomes part of the charm of Game of Thrones. In addition to just the attention to detail they put in everything else, you know, in the armor and in, in the sets. Uh, in the CGI, you know, it becomes a part of the whole package. And then, of course, once something like Game of Thrones becomes a phenomenon, then that's part of what gets picked up with it um, when people want to emulate its success. Um, and certainly this had, um, there's a long progression that led to this, uh, including um, uh, James Cameron's Avatar, which was probably inspired by the success of using, uh, well, let's say, non-English in both uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy and, I always argue, uh, The Passion of the Christ, which, you know, was... The whole thing was in a couple of different dead languages that nobody spoke, and yet, you know, made a whole bunch of money. People went out, actually went out to see it and tolerated sitting through an entire movie where practically nobody could understand any of it, ever. You know? And it was like, that's kind of the nudge that I think a lot of producers needed to say... Um, this is not only something that all audiences will tolerate, this is something that audiences will seek out and find interesting. I think it adds a completely new layer and dimension to the experience of immersion. You know, you've got this whole suspended disbelief, okay, I'm in a fantasy world with elves and hobbits, or or there are, there are the Dothraki horse lords, or these big blue aliens with weird ponytails. And not having them talk to you in a Brooklyn accent yeah. or, or, or to use, you know, Valley slang from Southern California or whatever helps transport you into that world and gives you that extra nudge. And, and I think that Hollywood has seen that that's very effective and, and is a lot cheaper than, um, you know, CGI. <laughs> I mean, have, have either of you guys studied the language, the Navi language from Avatar? Is there anything interesting to, to say about that? There, Na, Na, Navi is, I, I mean, we've, we've been seeing this, this multiplicity of, of more and more constructed languages coming out of Hollywood, and, and I love it. Uh, because, you know, the poor Klingon speakers have been all alone for so <laughs> long, you know, and now, you know, we, we really like the, the Dothraki speakers because they understand violence, you know. So, so we can we can go to war with them. Uh, the the Navi speakers, you know, they're growing things and and that's lovely, and we're going to kick their asses. Um, <laughs> but you know, and then it just becomes to you know who wants to to beat on them first, uh, the Klingon speakers or the Dothraki speakers. But um, we're seeing this growth, and we're seeing you know, I I used to be asked this a lot around the question of why we were translating Shakespeare into Klingon or, or as the story goes, restoring Shakespeare to the original <laughs> Klingon. And, and part of the pattern that I had, part of my canned response to, to newspaper reporters was if I brought one person to Shakespeare who otherwise hadn't read Hamlet or much ado about nothing or any of the plays, 
And I, and I lured them there because of this made up language, you know, attributed to fictitious aliens in a distant part of the galaxy hundreds of years in the future. Then that's a win. Uh, it broadens your experience and studying any language, uh, and little, you know, whether it be a naturally occurring language or constructed language expands your understanding of your native language. And, you know, everybody in Europe knows this. Americans are clueless about this, and they, every language has all these unspoken rules that you just you just learn and you never question until you hit a language that doesn't do it that way, and then you go, "Whoa, hmm. language language is how we choose to carve up reality," and different languages do it in different ways. And looking at those differences. You know, now we're, now we're moving from, from linguistics into psycholinguistics. That's, that's all about how we look at the world. Well, actually, actually, Lawrence, what you were just saying really made me, reminds me of, um, you know, when, when I asked for people to suggest science fictional languages and things for us to discuss and researching them, uh, something came up a bunch called the Saper Whorf hypothesis, uh, which I gather basically says that your language determines, in a sense, what you can think. And it makes me think of a Newspeak from 1984 where they try to give people this really denuded language so that they can't think anything particularly treasonous or interesting. Um, what do you guys think about that whole, that whole this, the use of the Saper-Whorf hypothesis in science fiction? Um, there's, there's generally viewed to be strong versions of the Saper-Whorf hypothesis and weak versions. And I've yet to meet a, a professional linguist who... who gives any credence to the strong version. You know, that la language defines, shapes thought, thought shapes language. Uh, that it's this mutual circle going round and round. On the, on the weak front, we see evident, things that might be evidence of it all over the place. But at the end of the day, it, it really turns into a so what. Uh, I don't know that you can do that much with it, but it's, it's a wonderful part of the puzzle. Because, you know, it's, it's something you want to be true, because you get scenarios like the one you described. If language is going to shape thought, then by controlling language, I can control your thought. Uh, but likewise, if thought shapes language, then by thinking about different, different types of things, the way I express, the way I, the way I interact with my world through language is going to be transformed as well. Um, so basically, if, uh, you know, let, let, uh, let's say if your language, I don't know, if your language didn't have a word for love, You'd probably create a word for love, or just use some some sort of other term, and it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't mean like if you there were a bunch of people and they so for some reason their language didn't have a word for love that they were incapable of loving. That is uh, complete science fiction. Bad science fiction. Yeah. Very bad. Science yes. Fiction. Yes. Bad science fiction. <laughs> well, I mean, speaking of, I mean, there, you also have the novel Babel Seventeen by Samuel R. Delaney, which I think is good science fiction by any. Brilliant you know, definition, but I mean, it, it it deals with the same sort of idea. This idea of, of a uh, of creating a language that anyone who learns it um, becomes a traitor to their cause, right? As and it's it's used as a weapon of war. I mean, that's a really cool idea, regardless of whether or not it has any basis in reality. There's a scene in Babel Seventeen that still gives me chills. We have spaceships have their sensors are actually dead spirits who communicate with the pilot. But 
human beings cannot hold memories of communications with the dead. They don't, they don't last. They don't make it into long-term memory. So you won't remember what you were just told, you know, is coming at you, for example. Unless you're, you're, you're connected into this elaborate machinery which burns these memories into your brain. And the protagonist of Babel 17 doesn't need that machinery. She takes what the, the, the ghost sensors tell her, translates it into Basque, which is unlike almost any other language on the planet, and then translates it back. And the act of doing that kind of translation fixes it in her memory. It's a throwaway bit that linguists love and everybody else just reads right past. <laughs> uh, how is Basque different in, in a, is it different? Yeah. How is it different in a oh, way that's relevant wow. to the story? Um, Basque is what we call an ergative language. Uh, and, and the simplest way to, to give you a feel for it without, uh, enrolling you in, in a linguistics 101 course and taking you two months into the course is to say that ergative languages see a relationship between the subject of, of a, a sentence that, that um, doesn't take an object and the object of a sentence that does take an object, whereas nominative-cusive languages like English see that relationship between the subject of both sentences. That does actually remind me of an interesting comment I came across online. Speaking of the you know subject uh, object kind of stuff, um, somebody posted a comment and they said a convincingly non-human naturalistic conlang would be more like elkareal, which doesn't use the categories of agent slash action slash patient that are used by all known human languages, but a fundamentally different scheme of categorization. Um, so it sounds like that would be a pretty cool alien language. Are, are you guys familiar with that one? Uh, I'm not, but I will say that it depends on the alien. Um, so if I, a lot of the alien languages that I've seen are usually given to aliens that are not convincingly alien. And so exactly. they come up with these really wild, non-human-like languages, but it seems that the two are unsuited to one another, since the aliens are simply not convincingly alien to warrant anything else than a human language that happens to have words for flora and fauna that doesn't exist on our planet. You need to take this, if you, if you I mean, you can make a convincing argument, but, but not the way uh, your, your questioner has. You know, uh, if your alien interacts with his or her, its environment, much the way we do, they breathe atmosphere, their language is, is made of spoken sounds, uh, they ingest nutrients, they expel wastes, they have some sort of manipulators by which they, they move around their environment and manipulate things in their environment, then you're going to get things like agents. You're going to get the same sorts of categorizations. If you really want alien, you have to go alien. And the problem there is, particularly in fiction, it's it can be incredibly unsatisfying because it, by definition, a truly alien language is going to be one you can't comprehend. Uh, you can't, you can't grok it, so to speak. Um, I, I had a story where the aliens show up and they, they're, they're, they're lumps of igneous rock, as far as we can tell. And they throw Earth's best linguist in a room with one of these aliens. 
and they won't let either of them out until they communicate. And it's horrible. <laughs> and they're, they're making no progress at all. The, the rock every now and then emits a little ammonia. Uh, it, it paints colors on the wall or something. The guy's trying to talk to it. He's doing dialects. He's trying every different, you know, grammatical category you can think of. And in finally, after weeks of this, he starts banging the walls in frustration. And the rock can relate to this because it's frustrated too. And now we have a common ground to build communication from. All language between any communication between any two individuals requires that common ground. If you and I overlap enough, we speak the same language. If that overlap begins to pull apart, well, maybe we're speaking dialects of the same language. If it pulls further apart, well, we're speaking related languages. So I can understand maybe some of what you're saying, and you can understand maybe some of what, what I'm saying. And if we pull further apart, the languages are completely unrelated, and I'm going to go to war and kill everybody in your village. Because uh, that's how that works. Although, I mean, you do have the line in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that the Babel fish, by enabling communication by every alien race, has caused more and bloodier wars than anything else in history. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> we, we, D Douglas Adam, the death of Douglas Adams is a tremendous loss. Uh, I, I, I like, I like, uh, I like his stuff because I, I write a lot of silly science fiction and, and humor science fiction, and, and he was a master of it. And I wish, I wish I'd gotten to, to write something like that before he did so I can take credit for it, but I can't. <laughs> um, so, you know, every, every year I do, I do anywhere from half a dozen to a dozen conventions. And invariably, there's a panel on linguistics in science fiction. And invariably, they put me on it. Uh, and I make everybody on the panel cry. And we you often talk about what do you have to do as an author to come up with an alien language that is alien enough to satisfy the reader who wants something alien, but still gets the job done. And the vast majority of examples of this in 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 fiction are horrible, uh, because you know a lot of science fiction is written by by academics, but they're people with their doctorates in engineering and physics and chemistry and biology, and I don't know a lot of people who have degrees like I do or like David has, uh, who are writing science fiction, and and so they're. You know, they're getting, they're getting the physics right. They can tell you everything about the gravity of the planet, the density and the core and all that. But, you know, the aliens land and they all sound identical. I always say, I want to hear alien speech impediments. I want to hear the, the Martian equivalent of, you know, <laughs> and um. And I, I, I don't want to talk to the, the officer on the bridge who's gone to all the best schools, you know, and, and has had, had diction lessons and all of this. I want to talk to the guy who's scrubbing out, you know, the mess, who didn't get that education, who has the different dialect. I want to see different dialects among the, among the, the aliens. I want all the full richness of language that we have in the alien language. And then I want to take it a step further, and I want figurative language. I've been pushing for this in Klingon for 20 years. Uh, because if you, if you really are driving your conlang, 
then you should be able to talk about, you should be able to use metaphors in that language and be understood. Mm. Well, I did want to mention, I mean, I think two of the best examples of, uh, of science fiction stories involving an alien language that feels convincingly alien that people mentioned are China Mieville's Embassy Town and Ted Chang's Story of Your Life. And Lawrence, in an email, you described Embassy Town as a psycholinguist's dream book. So I guess you think that that one's a, a well-done example? I tell everybody that, that I, I've never met China, but I'm convinced he wrote that book for me. <laughs> I always loved his writing before that. Uh, I thought Puget Street Station was insanely brilliant, for example. But Embassy Town, Embassy Town was a, a, a science fiction linguist's wet dream of a novel. Uh, it, it, I can't begin to, 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 to sing its praises enough. Uh, I should, I should write an epic battle song in Klingon <laughs> for it. Um, and, and there, there are pieces in there where people, human beings are, are brought in by these aliens who need a new word to illustrate a concept. And they put a human being in a situation that that evokes that concept so they can see it, so they can experience it. It doesn't matter what happens to the poor person. That person then becomes a word now in that language. Uh, and the narrator is, as a young girl, she's locked in a room. She's not not abused, but she's, she's made uncomfortable. It's cold. It's damp. She's left hungry. She can't leave. And, and this was serving some purpose in their language. They wanted to be able to talk about that concept. And, and presumably there was more to it than that. And then when they're done, they let her out. But everyone now knows she's that word. She's that idea. Uh, and there's this small community in the, in the embassy town of human beings who are words in the alien's language. One of them is he who swims with the fishes, uh, which is a nice little joke that, uh, <laughs> Mievo put in there. But the idea of, being a living piece of a language was profound, I thought. Uh, and it, and it, it just shapes these characters and some of them can't deal with it. Uh, it's a different kind of responsibility than human beings have ever had to deal with before. Uh, and others, you know, deny it and on and on. And it's just a completely orthogonal kind of way of thinking about language. Than we normally see. So, so yes, we run listeners run right out now, and and get a copy of Embassy Town. And when you read it and don't understand it, um, come see David and I at a convention. <laughs> and also, I interviewed China about that book back in episode forty three. So you might want to go check out that that interview. Absolutely. <laughs> um, how about Ted? Chang? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna hang up right now and do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how about Ted Chang's story of your life? Have you guys uh, have you guys read that one? I have. This is, it's been so long. This is the, um, the written language is, is serial, but the spoken language is actually simultaneous and, and travels through time. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so the, the main character learns this alien language and that alters her perception of time. And the story yeah. is written in the second person future tense. Ted's just freaky. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, there, there, there's this, it's not quite true, but it might as well be. Uh, anytime Ted is up for an award, everybody else who's, who's nominated just as well, Ted's going to win. <laughs> I only know of one time when he didn't. Uh, but 
Yeah, he he had you know he doesn't write a lot of stuff, but every now and then he'll put out a story, and he's living in a in a universe of his own. Uh, I wish he would construct a language. <laughs> um, actually, I mean, speaking of constructing a language, I did want to talk more about the Dothraki language, David, that you made for Game of Thrones. You said that the producers approached you about doing that. How did they find you in the first place? Um, well, they uh, they found the Language Creation Society, which is a good thing. Um, and what happened was the Language Creation Society then put out a call. So the call went out to all of the language creation communities. Um, and what resulted was a competition that was very poorly designed, but nevertheless, which allowed um, language creators to actually compete to get the job. Um, and it was a two-round process. Uh, the first round was judged by other conlangers, and then the second round was judged by producers, and I was the one that made it through. Mm -hmm. And now you said that um, George had done a fairly good job of um, sort of doing an ad hoc language creation. Could you talk about what, um, you know, what, what was the state of Dothraki when you came to it and what was um, sort of well done about it and what needed really to be expanded? In the first three books, there were 56 uh, words of Dothraki, um, and about half of them were names. Yeah, just uh, just uh, proper names. Um, and then outside of that, there were a couple of phrases, and then there was one sentence. But um, where I think he did a really good job, which is actually quite unique, at least amongst what I've seen with, with fantasy authors, is that First of all, all of the words looked like they came from the same language, which is um, not an easy trick, but he did it. So the um, the phonology seemed to suggest itself just based on what words were there. And then um, he also managed to make everything uh, cohere typologically, by which I mean um, the Jodhraki looks like, based on just the samples from the book, based on how I analyzed it, uh, it looks like a very uh, standard head-initial language, meaning that nouns come before the adjectives, uh, meaning that uh, the verb comes before the object, and that there are prepositions as opposed to postpositions. Um, and that manages to be consistent throughout the work. Also, possessors follow the things they possess. Um, and all of that is just in the very few little examples that are in the books. So I was able to just take that and then expand upon it, um, just uh, filling out the grammar as I wish, but making sure that everything that was still in the books was accurate. And basically, I just got the chance to fill out a, a kind of a head initial language um, and have fun with it. And he did a really good job. Mm -hmm. And so that led to this uh, this new book, um, The Living Language, Dothraki. You want to tell us about that project and sort of how you came to do it? Yeah, uh, Living Language Dothraki is basically just a, a little, um, it's an introduction to the Dothraki language. Uh, it's being put out by, uh, by Living Language, which is a division of Random House, which is now Penguin Random House. And so it's, uh, there are three, there are three kind of portals to the course. One is a, uh, book, you know, an actual book that has a CD along with it where I did all the recordings, which is fun. Um, it's just a guided introduction to the language. And there's also an app, which is more, which has kind of like, which has games and also has, um, 
flashcards, and it's kind of like a kind of a soft intro. And then there's an online course that has everything that the written course has, but more material. And the idea is to take you from zero to about uh, kind of a novice level. So at the end of it, you can make your own sentences and talk about things um, without getting too complex. Um, and it was just like for a language creator, that was a dream come true. I mean, that's that's what all uh, that's what all language creators want is to kind of produce a book like this, so that people will be able to kind of learn and use the language, and and just figure it out and see what the structure's like. So, I mean, have you had people learning the language and talking to each other and giving you feedback on it and stuff like that? Well, the book hasn't come out yet, so I should say technically no, but yes. <laughs> uh, um, so, you know, af after the first season, um, you know, every people were trying to take down the dialogue, and I, and I was able to put up the dialogue for the episodes that it aired. Um, and from that, uh, the fans put together a fan site for languagedothraki.org. Um, and they got pretty good with it, especially a few people, uh, especially those from Scandinavia. They're the best for some reason, but, uh, they managed to get pretty good at Dothraki and, and kind of use it. You know, it's just fun. Like every year we have, uh, we have a haiku competition, which the same person has won three years in a row. <laughs> He's just too damn good. His haikus are too good. <laughs> I, I, I try to weight things against him. And he still wins. He's from Finland. Can, do you do you remember do you remember any of his haikus uh, off the top of your head? Uh, off the top of my head, probably not. I mean, I could look them up there on my site, but um, yeah, if you could look it up fun. in like just five seconds, don't you oh, yeah. hit us hit us with a haiku. <laughs> Let's see. Oh yeah, wait. Oh, this is a good one. I really like this one. Yeah, because this one's it's just kind of evocative. All right, so I, I can't remember if this was his first one. No, this must have been his second win. But um, here is here is his haiku. Rahesh at hithka, ukoivin vashmimuf, asabvasaon. And what that means, or what that translates to approximately is, the dry land is ready. A great noise reverberates like a stampede from the sky. Hmm. Wow, good stuff. See, Lawrence, do you have any Klingon haikus? Can you can you match that? You know, we I we we ran a series of contests over the course of the the, the journal's thirteen year run. So we and we always, you know, we were we like superlatives. It was always the great haiku contest. Uh, we had the great palindrome contest in Klingon. Uh, the you know every different kind of wordplay we could think of, we did a contest for. Uh, because that, and, and that's how you lure people into the language. You don't make them do, uh, declension drills like, like you're teaching them Latin, uh, unless you're filming the life of Brian and then it's, then it's a great gag. <laughs> uh, but you invite them to play. And in the process of wanting to, and where, where people are competitive, they want to play better than the next guy. So they learn a little bit more. This is why we, we have, you know, every year we get together, people sing songs that they've written in Klingon. Uh, sometimes they're, they're translations of songs. Um, there are a couple people who've started, who are professional musicians who've started putting out videos 
of Klingon versions of, of current popular songs. Um, it's really disturbing. <laughs> um, and very well done. Good production values. Um, you know, we, we did, um, we translated Hamlet, of course, but there's a, there was a, uh, a theater company started in Minnesota and now they're, they're, they've moved to Chicago that have been putting on Dickens' A Christmas Carol in Klingon. And it's extraordinary. Um, but this all, this all goes back to play, you know, wordplay. Who can come up with the best pun, the best haiku? The, we had, um, we had Klingon knock knock joke competition. Um, which is kind of tricky because the same phrase that means who's there also means, um, who cares. So when someone knocks on your door, you know, who cares? Don't even bother to answer the door. Well, I mean, Lawrence, when you say that it's like disturbing, I mean, there is some truth to that because it does seem that constructed languages evoke some level of hostility from the uninitiated, right? And I heard in an interview, David, you mentioned that linguistics programs were were really pretty hostile to this whole idea. Um, could you just talk about that sort of hostility and is it getting any better um, as these things become more prominent? Yeah, it's simply unfamiliarity. Um and um, I think that it dissipates with familiarity. So, for example, the, the linguistics departments that I've come from, both Berkeley and uh, and UC San Diego, are now quite receptive uh, to just creative languages in general. And I think that what there was initially is that linguistics is kind of a a field that is often under fire. And so I think anything that's related to linguistics that could possibly diminish the field, linguists sometimes will react defensively. And they certainly did that uh, over the years with uh, with constructed languages, um, especially when one of the most prominent examples of constructed languages was Esperanto, which carried with it kind of a, a political agenda. Um, but uh, I think that Many linguists, not all, certainly, but many linguists are really getting it now. That, you know, those who create languages and those who are interested in creating languages are really interested in language, period. And that interest in language is a good thing because it leads you elsewhere. You know, it leads you to interest in other natural languages, sometimes leads you to interest in the study of natural language. And, uh, it also just kind of raises your level of understanding of language in general, uh, which, as Lawrence pointed out, is pretty low in America specifically. So, you know, if there's anything that can get somebody in the general public kind of into language, just to look around and say, oh, wait a minute, you know, language is a little different from what I thought it was. Um, maybe I shouldn't give somebody a hard time for speaking a language I don't understand. You know, that's a great thing. There there are a couple groups that, that I think may have more of a legitimate beef, but but I, part of the problem is that they're playing a zero-sum game. Um, people in academia who are studying what are referred to as less commonly taught languages, and people in academia who are trying to preserve endangered languages, and, and we're losing languages every day, practically. Uh, their their argument is that time spent on a on a constructed language could be time spent on a language where you know you can put all the remaining speakers in a room uh, and and the problem there is 
that they're missing the, the larger point, that it's not an either or. That in fact, the sort of people who look at Klingon or Dothraki or Navi are going to be captivated by language in the larger sense, language with a, a capital L as, as Mieville uh, would have it. And they're the ones who are on a lark going to go off and study some obscure Aleutian dialect, you know, that's not going to last another 10 years. Uh, and, and I'm, I, when I, when I see Dothraki exploding because of, uh, the work David has done, when I, when I hear people saying, I want to learn not the, and, and so forth, you know, this is, this is great. Um, some people have asked me, well, should, should Klingon feel threatened because now there are these other constructed languages coming out of popular culture? And no, no, that doesn't diminish what I do or the other Klingon speakers do at all. Um, Many of the early Klingon speakers we got imported in from because they were studying Lojban. Uh, and many of them had studied Esperanto and on and on. It is, it is one big club. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward when, when either the Dothraki speakers invade the, the Klingon Language Institute's annual conference or we show up, you know, at theirs. Surprise! We brought, we brought <laughs> Rokeg Blood Pie. Um, <laughs> It, it, it will be, it will be, well, the Klingon word is glorious. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, David, if, if, uh, if, you, if there's a fantasy in, or a science fiction author out there and they're in the position George R. R. Martin was in when he set out to write Game of Thrones where they're not a linguist, um, but they just need a couple dozen words um, of a language to use in a book, what's the best approach they should take? Are there resources out there that they should look at? Um, what do you think about that? Well, there will be once I come out with the Art of Language Invention next year. But <laughs> um, but really what I think they should do is I think that they should hire a conlanger. Um, there are literally thousands, thousands of people all over the world who spend a better, the better part of their free time creating languages. And, you know, I was one of them. Um, and I still basically am a part of that community where really we just love creating languages. We love perfecting our art, love to get better at it. And a lot of them would love uh, to be in my position. And I think that it's going to be tough to break into television for a conlanger. But I think it might be easier to break into fiction. And this is a place where you can actually get away with a lot less in fiction than you can on a show um, because of, you know, the conventions of narration. But um, at the same time, if it's going to become successful, then it will run into the same problem that they had for Game of Thrones, where they go for more language and there isn't any there. It would be wonderful if there were tons of conlangers working with fantasy authors, working with science fiction authors, where the author can spend the time on the story and the conlanger can spend the time on the language, so that by the time it gets picked up and it becomes the next blockbuster, whether on film or television. They actually have the language there to go along with it, and then the conlayer is in. Um, and right now, the place where both conlayers can go and people interested in getting languages created can go is uh, the Language Creation Society's Jobs Board, which is jobs.conlang.org. All right, sounds great. Um, and then just the final thing I wanted to ask you guys about is sort of what is the future for constructed languages? Um, I think languages like 
Esperanto were conceived with really ambitious aims. Um, are there problems in existing languages that could be solved if we would all start speaking a constructed language? Will language stop developing since we're, we're all um, all online all the time and there's not it's not going to break up into different dialects, etc. Just what do you guys think overall is the is the future of language and constructed language? Just briefly, Esperanto was the greatest chance for there to be a universal, a truly universal auxiliary language. And the world wars just busted that up. Now there's no chance. There's no chance that there will be a constructed language, let alone Esperanto, that's being spoken by everybody. Um, and I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. It's just a thing. But now there's, uh, you know, as Lawrence was saying, there are a whole bunch of options. And the way I see kind of success for creative languages going in the future is that um, they're going to produce, in a sense, their own fandoms. Klingon's a nice model, uh, a nice case study of this, and and part of the success of Klingon has been, you know, it wasn't just a constructed language. It was a constructed language that already had an association with Star Trek, that already had this pre-existing fandom, this pre-existing community. Uh, I used to tell people that, you know, having grown up with Star Trek as a child, now as an adult, I still want to, you know, quote-unquote, play Star Trek, but I need do something with a little more intellectual rigor. I'm going to disagree with David, though, on on where on, on the future of, of of language, in in the sense that I suspect as, as English begins to beat the crap out of other languages on on a worldwide basis, uh, for for all sorts of reasons, political, economic, what have you, I think we may end up, and partly because of the the instantaneous communication that the internet gives us, uh, for for little or no money. We're going to end up with a, a greatly reduced version of English, something that, you know, George Bernard Shaw was, was actually leaning toward in, in some essays long, long ago. Because English is, English is a horrible language, you know, with, in terms of the structure, the irregularities, you know, uh, a Germanic language with 70% Latin vocabulary. It's horrible. And, and I pity any, anybody who's trying to learn English as a second language because it's really hard to puzzle out. The, the rules change on you midway through the language over and over again. So I could envision a version of English that stepped down a little bit to allow more universality. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing. Uh, because at the end of the day, we want the language to do what we want it to do, whether that's selling widgets to somebody who's in a, in a market, you know, in a, in a small village somewhere in another continent. Uh, how can I get my message out there to as many people as possible? All right, great. So, I mean, guys, this has been really great, but unfortunately we're all out of time here. So I think we're going to have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with David J. Peterson and Lawrence M. Schoen. So, guys, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Been a pleasure. And that was our panel. So thanks again to David J. Peterson and Lawrence M. Schoen for joining us as guest geeks. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including N8Fet, who writes, Geeks Unite. If you are a geek, this podcast is for you. I use the podcast to feed my ever-growing list of cool books to read, cool movies to watch, and cool topics to discuss with my other geek friends. 
The author interviews are really interesting thanks to the well-researched questions that the host comes prepared with. The panel discussions are also very lively, filled with authors and professionals and just plain other geeks that are passionate about the topics. Feed your geek interests and listen to this great podcast. You won't regret it. So big thanks to N8FET for that great review. And of course, a very special thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including our newest crowdfunder, Kenneth Reed, crowdfunder number 89, who also just became the latest listener to be making monthly contributions to the show. This episode was also made possible thanks to support from listeners such as Bruno Onkir, Raymond Chan, and Stephen Segarian. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. In other news, my short story Save Me Please is featured in episode 24 of the new Far-Fetched Fables podcast. The story was originally published in Realms of Fantasy magazine and was reprinted in Rich Horton's anthology series Fantasy the Best of the Year. It also appeared as episode 124 of the Escape Pod podcast and was featured in episode 84 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. But this is the first time it's being performed with a British accent, so go check that out now at farfetchedfables.com. And if you're going to New York Comic Con, come see me moderate a panel on the new saga fantasy and science fiction imprint from Simon & Schuster, which is being edited by Joe Monty, our guest geek from episode 104. Also joining us will be saga authors Nydia Korofor, Sam Munson, and Ken Liu, and that'll be on Thursday, October 9th at 5 p.m. in room 1B03. And also, if you live in the New York area, you should come see James Morrow, our guest geek from episode 111, at the New York Review of Science Fiction Reading Series on Tuesday, October 7th. And to learn more about those and other New York events, follow Geek's Guide NYC on Twitter. Alright, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.